Dr. Amara Nazim, psychologist and eating disorder specialist. We talk about what an eating disorder looks like and how they're diagnosed. We also discuss the BBC documentary that you may recognise Amara from, Freddie Flintoff Living with Bulimia. My reaction to it, as someone who's lived with bulimia for a long time, Amara's thoughts on it, as well as why this programme was so important, despite some of the backlash online. We also talk about the prevalence of disordered eating in wider society, including the fitness industry where cheat days and fasting are encouraged in men and women, the barriers to seeking help for those from ethnic minorities, as well as some of the recent inquests into the services and why it is something to be welcomed as it will help the NHS to get more investment into eating disorder services. Over the last year, we've all had to adapt in many ways and treatment has also had to do so in order to keep up with the demand that COVID has put on us. Feelings of food scarcity, pressures and relapsing due to lack of control and emotional upheaval. We talk about what you can do if you're concerned about your own mental health or eating patterns, as well as what you can do if you're concerned about somebody else. I think it's really important to continue having these conversations because this year has been absolutely mental in so many ways but mental health doesn't go away it doesn't take a break and in fact a lot of the time when we go through periods of uncertainty and um, real distress we end up going to coping mechanisms which may not always be the most healthy for us so I wanted to bring this conversation with you Um, it was recorded a little while ago it's taken me some time to get it uploaded just because it was such a good chat I didn't want to kind of miss anything out and um, yeah life's just been a little bit crazy but without further ado I am really excited to share this podcast with you remember to rate review subscribe do all the things and here we go so welcome to Tribe Talk. Hi Emily, thanks for having me. Hello, thank you so much. Um, I am, have been really excited about this chat. So for people that may not know you, um, give us a little bit of a rundown about who you are and what you do. Okay, yeah. I'm Dr. Romana Nassim. Um, I was recently featured on the BBC documentary Freddie Flintoff Living with Bulimia. Um, so I'm a specialist counselling psychologist. I work in the NHS South London and Maudsley Eating Disorders Outpatients Unit. So I treat a whole range of eating disorders in an outpatient setting. And I also have private practice that I work in based in London. But due to COVID, everything's virtual and online at the moment. Um, yeah, and I did my training in a mixture of Scotland and London. And now this is what I do full time. Yeah, I was going to say that accent is not a London accent. No. <laughs> I love it um yeah I mean I think 
there is so much that we can dive into. So let's just get into it. Um, the documentary that you mentioned with Freddie Flintoff was something for me that really resonated. Um, obviously, my diagnosis was bulimia. Um, and I spent 10 years living with an eating disorder. Um, and so I was watching it and part of me was so happy to finally see the spotlight being put onto bulimia, but also onto the reality that men deal with eating disorders just, you know, just yeah. the same as women do. There's no kind of um, choice in terms of uh, who, who, who suffers with it. Um, but I wondered if we start started off if we could talk a little bit, bit about what eating disorders are and like the different types of eating disorder because I think some people that might be listening may never have had experience with an eating disorder or have known anyone with an eating disorder so it would be really good to kind of break down the different types um, and how they kind of show up in people's lives. Sure so there's a whole different way of categorizing eating disorders that clinicians use so in the NHS, we use the DSM-5 criteria and also the ICD-10 criteria. Technicalities of that probably aren't really of interest to people. It's something that clinicians use and GPs use to diagnose. Um, but eating disorders present um, different symptoms in order to be classified as, let's say, anorexia. There's also an atypical anorexia diagnosis where you think about symptoms like restricting, um, whether people can also be anorexic, can be binging and purging, um, be certain BMI, be underweight, um, also be preoccupied with weight and shape related behaviours and thoughts. So the you know the thoughts are all around, based around you know behaviours related to their eating, you know um, their exercise, uh, their bodies, and just being completely preoccupied with these sort of thoughts around weight, shape, and how they look. Um, bulimia. Um, is characterised by binging, restricting, over-exercise, use of laxatives, um, diet pills, diuretics, anything, any of these behaviours that are around influencing body weight and shape and size. Uh, for men, that might also be even steroid abuse. For diabetics, that may be purging, using their, um, abusing insulin use. You know, so it, it can come up in a lot of different types and forms. A lot of people, like even Freddie in the documentary, was saying just thought it was the act of being sick. But actually, there's a whole range of things and behaviours that go alongside the diagnosis of bulimia. There's also atypical bulimia with that as well, where it might be that's there's just maybe little tweaks in how people will, will behave in correspondence with in terms of BMI or, or behaviours and what they're doing. So there's also um, a diagnosis which is called other specified feeding and eating disorders which can be a mixture of symptoms from either eating disorders, um, any, um, including binge eating disorder as well, where people binge and overeat. Um, so if you don't quite fall into any of those categories, there's a whole separate other category, which can also relate to just having a mixture of symptoms um, being presented in a different way. So even if you don't fall into like a typical, you know, idea of what, oh, I might not just be just restricting or binging and purging, I might be doing a mixture of these things and, um, the frequency of it also is involved in the diagnosis. You, you would still be categorised as having an eating disorder, but just that it has mixed characteristics and symptoms. And I think that's what a lot of people don't really 
maybe know is that there are so many symptoms and different behaviors that they they do kind of mix together quite a lot so it it's rare that you'll you'll find somebody that just doesn't eat for example um which is what a lot of people think about with anorexia they think you know well it's an it's it's somebody who looks emaciated who doesn't eat and is just concerned about being skinny and I think that that is obviously I know obviously that's that's incorrect but that is this society's view of of an eating disorder isn't it yeah and then people will think well is is the treatment just then eating more and then this person will get better and so actually that's that's a part of treatment and refeeding a starved brain and then actually what happens alongside recovery but what drives it underneath is also like the the emotions behind it you know what's happened for that person that's led to the development of an eating disorder which is used usually sort of a maladaptive way of coping with something this has been there's been conditions for an eating disorder to develop and thrive and therefore set in and continue to function and it's kind of understanding the reasons behind that in treatment with someone that's so individual for each person's eating disorder alongside how the eating disorder presents so like you say it can be no eating disorder just looks one way everyone's is individual and different and sure there can be characteristics that are similar that drive them all but actually each person is an individual and the treatment is about treating them that way and understanding the function behind them why why it's kept going so eating is one part of treatment but also the reason and the function behind why this exists what's it doing you know is it a way to cope has it been it's now a maladaptive way of coping so it needs to be unlearned there's lots lots of reasons you know as to what keeps it going and then figuring that out and then treating that it's not just let's eat and this person will get better you know and eating disorders aren't just about someone being underweight you can be a healthy weight you can be overweight you know as that's also kind of a myth I think it's perpetuated in in the media or in people's minds thinking that they they look a certain way or someone has to look unwell you never know who has an eating disorder they don't look any one way Mm. And I think that's something that probably shocked a lot of people when the Freddie Flintoff documentary came out because, you know, Freddie Flintoff has been on our TV screens for a long, long time now. And I don't think many people would have pointed at him and gone, yeah, he's got an eating disorder because he hadn't ever really, you don't see somebody in their behavior around food when they're on screen, do you? You know, they don't, you don't see their, their preoccupation with their weight. You don't, and, and it, it doesn't look a certain way, which I think was is what I found so um, vital in that documentary, because here you have somebody who is, you know, successful um, and from the outside, lots of people would be like, oh, yeah, he's killing it. He's got this amazing job. You know, he's a career, an athlete, has it all really relatable yeah. as well, really personable. Yeah. And I think that that was kind of one of his things, wasn't it? He kind of was like, well, if this is my one thing, um, then then I'll I'll do I'll, I'll kind of take it. And I that, that was one of the parts of the documentary. We spoke about this before, where there was a little bit of backlash online about people saying um, it it didn't go far enough, if that made sense. I think they were looking for a happy ending when, you know, this is real life and you know, Freddie is on his own journey now. Um, and he came to kind of a realization at the end of the documentary, which was that, you know, he he acknowledged that he hadn't had a problem, which I think was a really 
powerful kind of step to have taken. Um, but yeah, there was this little little bit of backlash about the fact that people found it to like not have this almost happy ending. And I found, I, I just found it was like, I, I found the whole thing really, really important because life doesn't have a happy ending. And actually when somebody is suffering with an eating disorder, it isn't as cut as dry as like, I've got a problem. I'm going to get help. I am now better. It's a lot longer than that. Yeah. And one of the difficulties with eating disorders as well is that acknowledging that you have a problem or an issue, because a lot of people will feel like, you know, ambivalence is part of the presentation. This, do I have a problem or don't I? And I think that's really what you see him struggling with through the documentary and he openly talks about it you know it's it is a real journey into him understanding his relationship with food and himself and his self-esteem and his eating disorder so really like the documentary is a lovely piece on exploring that and him really going into that on screen with people and talking about it for the first time so really you, you can see that you know when he gets information and is thinking about it that's alive and real and in that moment and kind of being at odds with it and battling like well I've learned to live with it for so long do I really want to let it go and that's so typical of everyone I think that has an eating disorder and comes in to get help it's that kind of you know one foot in the door and one foot out and that I'm not too sure but let's see and I know that's probably where a lot of people probably felt frustrated and naturally kind of want to see someone get better and well but that's where he was at that point in his journey and you know all completely up to him and he's ready for what he mm. wants to do with that going forward yeah I I totally agree with you I think I personally wanted to step in and like say to him like you can have it all like you can have all this stuff you know this this life that you're living and you can be healthy and have a good relationship with food it is possible um, but I guess because I know that it gets to a certain point where you've you've had a diagnosis for so many years and you're kind of like, well, maybe this is just me. And I spent years in that in that kind of point where I was like, OK, well, maybe this is just something that I'm always going to have. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's that that's like near the end and you've just got to step a little bit further and you get there. So that was the one thing I wanted to do with him. I wanted to like sit in front of him and be like, it's possible. But um no, I thought the whole thing was amazing. And maybe he got that from talking to the patients that were in it and being really brave as well and sharing their journey and story. Like the young boy who was from the Northern Service as well that was in treatment, but talking about, you know, his um stopping like he just learned to recently stop binging and how he was managing his relationship and therapy and relating things his eating disorder to past events in his life and you know Freddie was in there talking with him about that and then meeting Jamie my patient from the Maudsley as well who had recovered and no longer had bulimia but also had depression which is another thing Freddie's spoken about and related to and I think that meeting Jamie was good for him to see that recovery is possible but at that point, he's still thinking, do I have this, you know? So I think it really made him think massively about, you know, he had to, he, it documentary at the end, but he probably had more questions than when he went in with and was a bit more confused. But maybe that's just part of the process of change, you know, starting to think and thinking things can be different because that message was definitely driven home to him throughout the mm. documentary. You know, you don't have to live with this and, you know, you can live a life where you're not living by feeling like you're coping or just living with it alongside it that you can be free from it and you can have a healthier relationship 
with yourself, with food, with how you eat, you can not feel guilty. No. Yeah, I loved it. I think as well on like a wider spectrum, I think it it made a lot of men think as well. Um, I used to work in a gym and I used to see people that were really into their fitness um, that definitely had body dysmorphia um, and they would go through, and this is quite a common thing with um, people who are trying to like reach a, a physical peak. They go through these stages of like eating loads and then like starving essentially. So they have things like cheat days where they can just have anything they like. I mean, look at The Rock. I don't know if you follow The Rock, but The Rock's cheat days for me, I'm just like, I mean, I'm not saying The Rock has a problem, but I think it feeds into this whole I think it's it's disordered eating in general that there is it's so prevalent in society. So a lot of the time you almost are like, oh, hang on, like this this is normal, but it, it's not at the same time. And I think quite a lot of men also probably watched that and then went, oh, I really actually resonate with a lot of stuff he's saying. Mm. And I think that I think I can't remember what the stats were for men who kind of present with eating disorders, but I've always kind of felt like the statistics obviously can only go as far as the people who have sought help. And exactly, yeah. What what we were able to record, what we're able to evidence, it's one in nine men that are bulimic in the UK. You're thinking of the millions of men that are there, that's the one in nine men that have been recorded who have come forward for treatment that were able to kind of um gather stats on but of course we know there's so many people that don't reach out and seek help mm. which is you know much more pronounced problem in um the minorities that we see men uh, those from different socioeconomic backgrounds minority backgrounds so hopefully the documentary's done a lot to bring that to the forefront and bring that to a different audience and have a lot of different people tap into it mm. definitely had a lot of people reach out to me and say and a lot of men in particular I really related to what he was saying. I've never thought about it this way. A lot of men reach out to me to come into treatment and get help. And even think, you know, like they've noticed that they maybe have some of that disordered eating, like different kind of habits that they maybe know aren't necessarily healthy. And even if it's not bulimia, it's, you know, it's true. It can be just those, those things that are leading to disordered eating, leading to a slippery slope and actually get the earlier you get help, the, the better. Mm that kind of disordered relationship with food isn't it and I think I men I mean this is a generalization but we'll use it for the sake of making a point men generally find it more difficult to talk about their mental health and their emotions and their feelings so I can understand obviously I, I not under, not that I can't understand what I'm about to say but I can see why the there is there are less people coming forward for help and for treatment but what are the barriers with people in um like ethnic minorities in seeking help is it a cultural thing is it like perhaps a religious thing what do you what's your experience of that yeah i think again there's not enough research done in this area and it's a growing area which you know more attention has been paid to it which is which is great we absolutely do need to gather more information um, from what i know from the research i've read and from my experience in our even in our service in nhs i think it is a lot to do with again stigma and how secrecy and shame and knowing that those are conditions for eating disorders to thrive barriers to seeking help 
um, I think in ethnic minority backgrounds, there's maybe not always a culture of being able to openly talk about mental health and how this affects them. And it might be related to then other ways of treating an eating disorder or mental health illness. So maybe thinking about religion and faith healers, which it, it is I'm not knocking that there's a place for that, you know, but I think now even re religious and faith leaders are also seeing and being more aware now, actually, that there's limits on what they can do. And they will, they will also now encourage people to go and get help from the right professionals and say like, there's no stigma in that, there's no shame in that, it's absolutely okay. You know, we do need to go and seek the right types of help for conditions that, you know, they are not qualified to, to treat. So I think there's a lot of thinking about culture, you know, and, and, and that what ties into that is, you know, faith, religion for people, spirituality, and again, just that different cultural representation of how people will tend to seek help, where they will go for it, how they will talk about it, what they're encouraged to do. And again, that can be it can be so different for depending on your background and where you're from. So maybe there's some work and some scope for um, mental health professionals to be going into minority areas and, and raising awareness or even going into GP surgeries and raising awareness and talking about, you know, how do we engage these communities more? And it would be great to get feedback from obviously people in these communities who have sought help or, you know, are able in a position to be able to do some liaison work with us around that and, and seeking and raising awareness and getting people to come in and seek help. There's maybe a reluctance in going to the GP and feeling listened to as well, or maybe they prefer to go to someone within their community. So there's, there's, there's scope for kind of trying to build bridges and encourage that to improve. Yeah, just kind of opening the doorways. So I think people tend to wait longer to get help, they suffer, and then they will present uh, a stage in their illness when they're worse. You know, they need more extreme help. Maybe they need more, they, at that point they will need, for example, admission into hospital. So there was an article recently, I think it was in The Guardian that I posted um, a few weeks back, and it was showing that the stats for people from BAME communities getting admitted for help for eating disorders in hospitals was like it massively increased compared to non-BAME people. And I think that was because they weren't seeking help because of these barriers and they were then presenting at that point in the illness where they had deteriorated and they were at the extreme end of needing help. And obviously that's heartbreaking to see. We want to get everyone, everyone has equal access to help. You know, it's mm. so important that we, we try and break down those barriers and address them. Yeah. I know as well, we were going to talk about the, the article that came out recently. Do you want to just kind of go over that a little bit? Because I feel like this is a this is the right time to start talking about. Sure. The one that was in the news on Friday about yeah. the NHS. So I think it was the NHS Cambridgeshire Trust had done an inquest into some deaths around um, people who'd sadly lost their lives, five young women from anorexia, and they'd decided that it was due to neglect and just thinking about how their cases never weren't handled in the correct way after an inquest. And there were some failures in the health system's part or people involved, which is awful to see. Again, just, just so unnecessary and heartbreaking, these poor families and what they're going through. And again, now the... The good thing that's came from that is now th the NHS England's announcing and thinking about rolling out more funding and resources for services in the UK to be able to treat people and rolling out the free service, which the Maudsley had piloted and developed and rolled out, which is an early intervention service for um, people between 18 and 25 who are experiencing an eating disorder. So it's their 
you know, their, their first episode of an eating disorder, getting in there early, treating it early, and knowing that within the first three years of the development of an eating disorder, um, if you get in there early, it's basically have better recovery rates and in terms of having sustained recovery. It's so important. After three years, it's still, of course, possible to recover, but it takes a bit longer for the hardwired changes in the brain to, to be changed, you know, in terms of in treatment. So yeah. it's a really good outcome in terms of them recognising that they need to invest in more funding in, in, in services, provide more access to treatment, to roll this out nationwide and, and offer more help. You know, we need more funding to be able to offer more help to people out there in all areas of the UK. It's just so sad that it came from something so tragic. Mm. See, this is this is one of the things that I'm really passionate about because um, I think the work that the Together Trust and the NHS do is incredible. I mean, literally saved my life. Um, however, I recognise that the wait times are far too long. Yeah. So... I when I first went to seek help uh, I was put on an 18 month waiting list and I, I only got shorter when I became quite critical um, and I think that's probably a lot of people's experience this is obviously in my area it's not the same in every area um, but it just doesn't feel like there's enough resources there to be able to help the people that need it at the time that they need it in if that makes sense essentially a lot of people are are told that they're they need help but that they're not sick enough if that makes sense and it's nothing that the nhs are doing or the together trust are doing it's just the physical nature of you there are only so many people that are in a position to um there are only so many beds there are only so many like spots in day treatment um and you know cbt and things I just feel like there needs to be more um, support in the interim, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and and that's not a slight on the NHS or anything, you know, um, people like yourself do. But I just feel I've I've felt for so long that there just need we need to be able to bridge the gap. And I think that that is why a lot of people who you know may come out and and work in with people that have eating disorders that may not necessarily be doing it in in uh, the professional way that is the ideal way um but there needs to be i i just i don't know what the answer is um but you raise a good point emily because even even us clinicians in the nhs would agree with that you know it's we we would love to be able to offer treatment as soon as people need it you know it's really it's it's frustrating for us as that we have these huge wait times and we know you know we have a massive backlog now because of covid and already we were trying to you know cut down our wait lists and now they've grown exponentially because of this and you know we have ways of working where we're trying our best to get people seen sooner and offer interventions while they're on the wait list have clinicians check in on people as well to do reviews to check and see um we don't want people deteriorating while they're waiting for treatment and obviously we know that probably does happen as well which is what we try really hard to make sure that that doesn't we do not want anyone just sitting waiting and getting worse please reach out and tell your clinician if you're linked in with someone or your service that you need help sooner you know like that that is possible and that doesn't mean just weight loss that can mean psychologically your mood is going down you might be getting more thoughts that are riskier and harming yourself and um, your behaviors might be escalating in some way 
and that can go either way like for someone binging purging somebody's binging and gaining weight that's also dangerous for them and their health you know so it's not often we think about the effects of being underweight but there's also the risks that go with being you know overweight or being risking being pre-diabetic etc and everything that goes along with that so i think nhs wise clinician wise staff wise we would love there to be more resources available to us to more beds to be available to admit people which is one of the good things that's come from that inquest as well that they will now be able to offer that and roll that out so more funding for beds more funding for clinicians to offer more treatment and to make our services suitable to see more people um, in terms of office space etc and now one of the good things from covid is now that we're offering virtual treatment and seeing that working from home is possible that things are becoming more accessible to people in that sense where maybe they couldn't make a time for a particular group that was happening but now it feels a bit easier to schedule that into their day because they're at home managing to join at times when maybe they travel and things would have got in the way um maybe there's people from around the country i see in private practice that were maybe not able to to get a specialist service referral or they're on the wait list for example so there's 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 from adapting at the moment because of covid is there's some things that have come up that have helped us to understand there's better ways of doing this and working as well offering treatments online i think that's something that we will um, aim to keep and then thinking about other services where people are on wait lists and waiting to get help beat you know the national eating disorder charity they're fantastic in what they do and what they offer um, they have a whole list of clinicians that you can search for in your area who are experienced in treating eating disorders. So important to go to someone who does have experience. And they have a lot of virtual online groups as well. And they've even got a daily one for um, COVID times called the Sanctuary that you can just you know log into and join and get some support through the day. And they've got peer support and they've got a lot of good training online and support for carers. And so they offer a lot. So it's, it's really worth checking out as well. Yeah, feet are an incredible resource as well. Um, and the work they've done throughout COVID as well, they've really kind of like stepped up their game even more, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, how have you found the change from face-to-face to like online? Oh, I think if you'd asked me before, I'd have been reluctant in thinking that obviously nothing beats face to face when you're talking to someone and you get to interact with them and see body language and just emote, you know, it's, it's completely different. But then thinking, how do you go from that to online? Is it going to feel like um, impersonal or is it going to work? But actually, I think it's forced us into understanding that it, it is actually quite good. You know, it does work. Um, your and my patients are the ones that tell me and give me feedback around that. You know, they're engaged. Um, it does work for them. Some of them like the virtual online, or some of them will keep their camera off and still talk. That's okay. But it, it, you know, it's still treatment is treatment. You know, we're still talking about the same things. We're still doing the same things. So it it's forced us out of our comfort zone, but actually, I think in a good way because it ha- it is working. It is working. It's allowed our service to stay open. It's allowed us to keep running. So all through COVID. Uh, we were still open and running and seeing people um, and now we've got it up and running so that we can just carry that on and continue we're still doing assessments we're still you know admitting people and welcoming new people that are you know ne- urgently needing help so we were doing our best in terms of keeping up and running because we know through these times that people are experiencing you know huge amounts of stress and anxiety and still need support and help 
So in a way, it's helped us just find a new way of working. And it's, it's yeah, it's, it is working for people. Mm. I would have been, I'm reluctant almost to say that I didn't think it would, but it does. And I guess that's just, it's true. It does. Mm. It's really funny because I'm studying at the moment and obviously the course was written pre-COVID and it's all about, you know, how that there's different modes of psychotherapy and a lot of the, the we're talking about um, kind of reluctance about online therapy and and how it was so important to be able to see the person's body language and the way they walked into the room and all this stuff and it's quite interesting I guess because you've still got to glean the kind of non-verbal cues from people without you know having them in front of you it's true it's true I guess it's just adapting and knowing your patient and Obviously, if you've met prior, that makes it a bit easier, but also picked up lots of new people and got through treatment and finished with them. And it's, it's yeah, it has worked. I guess we should, um, there probably will be a lot of research that comes out to support that as well now, that it's better to be adapting and trying it online than just leaving people without, you know, so it's finding a new way of working. Oh yeah, 100%. And actually even like, even doing these podcasts and things, you, you are still quite engaged, you know, you're still talking and you can pick up on things and nuances in people. So, yeah, it is, it is possible. Maybe yeah. some other types of modalities and therapies, it doesn't work for them, but I've found that it, it, it's still effective. Yeah, I think being able to adapt is so important as well. And I think that's just, I mean, worldwide, universal. We're it's, all doing it right now. We're all having to. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're in it together. And I think that's also really like reassuring and normalizes it for, the, for you and for your patient. Like, I'm having to adapt too, you know, you're doing it together. Mm. what's maybe not so great is my cat often um will jump into shots sometimes with people and that's <laughs> well, okay you know this is the constraints of working at home yeah <laughs> I always have to keep Dexter far away from me because otherwise he'll like pick up the squeakiest toy when I'm trying to podcast interview or like do anything and it's just uh, just a nightmare um so actually that reminded me as well in the, the first lockdown there was a lot of obviously with any kind of global uncertainty a lot of people find themselves kind of going into coping mechanisms which could be in the form of an eating disorder if we put it into the context of this conversation um but I know something that really affected people as well in the first lockdown was that that idea of food scarcity because um a lot of people when they are um going through recovery and they're having to like challenge different food fears um as well as you know having a a, like a you know your breakfast snack lunch snack dinner um there's that that fear that the food isn't going to be there which can also feed into um you know those thoughts and behaviors um did you find any kind of a, a resurgence of people during the pandemic personally um I know obviously the figures I'm not sure if the figures are there but you know what was your experience of how COVID has affected people yeah I think with raised anxiety and uncertainty and around what was going on and, and you know times of transition and change can trigger any kind of you know mental health condition in people so it, it was triggering some a lot of people in terms of their maybe just having a slight relapse or you know some symptoms re-emerging and 
I'm sure we did, I did see that quite a bit with people, maybe some re-referrals coming back or people who were maybe stable and in recovery and doing quite well then having like some stuff come back for them, whether it was like, okay, suddenly I'm really preoccupied with exercise again, or suddenly now I have, I feel like I need to earn my food or, you know, yeah, there's, I don't know how I'm going to do my shopping now with everything people bulk buying, which I do. I think it's just being, just be mindful of that. And again, yeah, I understand why this is happening and addressing that anxiety with them reminding them that they do have new ways of coping and more resilient than they think and it's normal at times of transition to feel anxiety and to think sometimes symptoms do re-emerge at times of stress again it's, it's part of the process isn't it recovery can be taking steps forward and taking steps sideways and backwards at times in order to keep on moving forward and even someone that's not of an anxious predisposition people were getting anxious you know throughout covid it's, it's difficult for everyone to learn to adapt we're not um, we're choosing to work from home you know we're working from home and adapting in a crisis it's, it's a very different kind of way of framing it I think supporting people during that time when they were having a re-emergence was is super important and, and just kind of letting them build their skills and, and supporting them through it and then learning to, to actually for them to be able to see once they got over that initial wave of panic that you know they, they were coping things were okay they were managing so what would you what would your advice be then for people who perhaps uh, have listened to this and and may connect with it with with some of the things we've said like what would you if somebody was concerned well let's let's put it into two categories if somebody's concerned about themselves what steps can they take um, and if somebody is concerned about somebody else this obviously is a more complicated question um, what can they do to support okay so I think if someone's concerned about themselves, um, speak to someone you trust. Uh, speak to someone that you know you can go to and feel relaxed talking to. Um, maybe arrange together to go to get an appointment with your GP, whether that's virtual or in person. And stress that it's important that you do need to talk to someone. This isn't like a routine appointment. Speaking to your GP as well and asking for a specialist referral um, because you do have these symptoms. And really just explaining what your worries are. What are you thinking and feeling? Have you noticed that you've developed a different relationship with food has your eating changed has your weight changed as well let the gp monitor that um have a think about what kind of thoughts you're having that are causing you distress or any new behaviors that have come in like are you exercising more what are you worried about what particular patterns of thoughts are you having so maybe talking to a loved one at first will help you just get some of that out maybe writing it out on a piece of paper would be good and then formulating some of your thoughts and going to the gp with that Another thing I would direct them to as well is the BEAT website and them having this um, cheat sheet. So they have a lovely section on like, if you are struggling, you know, what you can do. If you are supporting someone or worried about a loved one, what you can do as well. And there's a cheat sheet you can download and take to your GP just to say like, if it's really difficult to talk about this, but here you go, this is what's happening with me and these are my symptoms. So it will help you structure the conversation. It's so important if you feel you're struggling, get help. Don't sit there and think, well, I'm not that bad or it's not bad enough you know if you're struggling that's enough mm. go, and, go and ask for help and use these support groups that are online as well talk to people on there go in have a nosy if you don't feel like you want to chat that's okay you can be a tourist and just get a vibe and see what you feel like and then pop back out and think okay you know what do I need to support me mm. I think that's so important as well because eating disorders really thrive on secrecy and they kind of do their best to lurk in the shadows and it's just like oh it's just the way I am oh you know I, I just wear I weigh myself three times a day because 
I, it's just what I do, you know, or, you know, I don't eat this because of that. Like it, 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 it's very insidious. And I think if anybody is like slightly concerned or the way that they are starting to relate to food is starting to bother them in one way or another, then yeah, follow those steps that Amara said, because it's so important. Absolutely. So talk to someone, reach out, get help. Um, no matter how what it is you're struggling with, whether it's an eating disorder or any other sort of mental health condition at the moment, anxiety, depression, get help, talk to someone. And I think that's right. You know, it is insidious and it's clever in how it presents. And we do thrive in secrecy and shame. And actually learning that, you know, you're not alone and there's nothing to be ashamed of. And can you just crack through that, even if it feels uncomfortable? Because on the other side, you know, you're going to feel better once you do it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And if, if you're concerned about somebody who has started to, you know, maybe show up with some eating disorder behaviours, what would you, what, what advice would you give to somebody who is concerned? So whether you're a parent or a teacher or just a loved one or a friend, it's super important that you are able to kind of maybe get some information from beat around what you're noticing as well, um, just to help you gather some thoughts around what you're going to say, how you're going to structure your conversation. So I think it's important to reach out to them. Maybe plan your conversation in a way where you know that they're in a good space, they're relaxed, you know, they're going to be able to sit down and have some time with you so you can talk with them in a way that they feel safe and not attacked or threatened or accused. Know that maybe the conversation might feel difficult to have with this person because of the nature of, of shame and secrecy with an eating disorder. If you just let this person know, you know, I've noticed some things change in you. Maybe I've noticed, um, you know, that you're not eating enough or maybe even just you don't want to mention food, but you've noticed this person struggling in some way and you're concerned for them and you're worried about them and you are there for them and you'd be happy to support them and get help. And that might be enough for them to know that you're there if they're not ready to talk about it with you then. But also maybe just help them reach out to you and say, yes, you know, I am struggling can you support me and we can we can think about getting help together and then encouraging them to I'll come with you to an appointment or help you set that up or should we have a look at some online resources and read through them and does that make sense and yeah. see if you can identify with any of it I think reaching out talking if the conversation doesn't go well take a break step away from it I'll come back to it at a later time sooner rather than later mm. another day another day that week whatever that might be let that person know you're there for them and often if someone is being like, just, you know, they're panicking or they don't want to take it on board, please don't just give up, you know, try again with that person, leave them a note and think about the, using the resources and BEAT as well to help guide them towards help. Yeah, BEAT have got a, a um, support group for people who are supporting people with eating disorders as well, don't they? So you can check their website out and that, that will be probably a really good resource to have as well. And I think a lot of the times with people who are supporting people that have eating disorders, it can almost, it, it can be quite easy for people to take it as a personal slight on them if, if that person isn't listening. But I think remembering that this is an illness, you know, this isn't something that somebody is choosing to do or to spite you or to, you know, it's not, it's not, um, no matter what they may say, because people can say things when they're hurting um they can kind of throw things like oh it's your fault or you know whatever um it's important to know that it's 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 the eating disorder talking and and it 
it's something that um, it, it's kind of a protection mechanism that that it's playing out really like a defensive reaction isn't it like you know thinking about it I think that's really useful that I actually don't take it personally whatever said you know it feels difficult you know this isn't a failing on you in any part and people who are caring for those with a loved one with an eating disorder um, do need support of course this is like a really difficult thing to go through and to see a loved one suffer and to know what kind of support to offer is really tricky as well so go to these support groups go to the online skills um, workshops that they offer I know at the modular we offer a lot of family support and um, we offer a carer support group that's monthly as well for people to come along to we offer carer skills training and our professors and our team Janet Treasure or Rika Schmidt you know they've written books as well that are available on Amazon that we recommend to patients parents anyone caring for a loved one with an eating disorder um, and which goes through some really nice tips and skills for people to practice with their loved ones in terms of support because it's a minefield as well of course it's like people people are treading on eggshells so you shouldn't know how to do it don't feel guilty for not knowing but the information is there to support you personally and to help teach you on how to do it mm. and I think with both both sets of questions I think the underlying message that you're just not you're not alone you know you're not the first person to have ever felt the way that you're feeling although it may feel that way um you know you're not alone and, and there are people out there that can understand and and kind of make space for you to to be absolutely to support you and that recovery is possible 100 percent. thank you so much for this chat it's been so lovely um thank you for having me emily it's been lovely to be here good um what i'll do as well i'll i'll pop all of the links that amara just mentioned as well in terms of the books in the show notes so if anybody's interested in get, getting those off amazon um then head over to those show notes um i'll pop amara's um details into the show notes as well but if you just want to let people know where people can find you here yeah, so I've recently opened up an Instagram, which is a new venture just for people to reach out to me and to raise awareness about eating disorders. So I'm at Dr. Amara Nassim on Instagram, and I have my webpage as well, which is amaranassim.com. And NHS wise, if you it's South London and Maudsley NHS Trust. Amazing. In any of those platforms. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.